This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Mike Yuseem, Director of the Center for Leadership and Change and Faculty Director of the McNulty Program here at the University of Pennsylvania. My co-hosts, Sam Greenhall and Jeff Klein, are out today, so I am flying solo. And by the way, new episodes of our show premiere every Friday at 9 a.m., right here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And of course, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. So today we have a a special guest, um, a co-author of a really interesting new book. I'd like to welcome Peter Vanham to our show. Peter, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you again. Uh, Very good to be with you again. And again is right because you are a veteran of the program. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Peter wrote a great book before I was a CEO in which he spent time with those who had become CEO. But what exactly happened to them or what did they what, what steps did they take in their career? What were they thinking on their on that long path to becoming a CEO? It's a great book. I've read it. I know it well. Uh, but today, Peter, we're going to talk about a new book for which you are co-author It's called Stakeholder Capitalism, a Global Economy that Works for Progress, People, and Planet. Uh, That subtitle sounds pretty good to me, and we're going to focus in on that. Uh, Peter has written this book with Klaus Schwab, who for um, more than half a century now has served as the executive chair of the World Economic Forum, which has its famous gathering in Davos, Switzerland, a ski town or really a village not too far from Zurich. Uh, Peter has been working with the World Economic Forum himself for some time. So, Peter, let me uh, just uh, plunge in with a couple more personal questions. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your background, and then I'm going to ask you the same thing about the World Economic Forum. So, uh, I... (laughs) You live in Switzerland now. I think you're not Swiss. So just a bit about your background. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's true that the last couple of years since we talked, really, I was based in New York, where I was doing the U.S. Uh, media relations for the World Economic Forum. And then last year, uh, just uh, before the new year, let's say, in 2019, I got a call from that man that you already mentioned, the chairman of the World Economic Forum. And he called me up while I was doing a little walk in Central Park. And he said, Peter, uh, what do you think about uh, joining me here in uh, Geneva, Lake Geneva, and, and join the chairman's office? Because uh, I think I need to, some help with my communications. And uh, that's, uh, as they say, an offer I couldn't refuse. And so, uh, lo and behold, uh, I found myself, uh, my wife and, and myself, we moved to Geneva just um, after that. And uh, that's where I've been uh, been ever since. Uh, I've seen more of uh, Geneva and Switzerland, I think, than I had uh, counted with. Yeah, we moved just before the pandemic, but uh, it's been uh, it's been a good uh, a good experience, nevertheless. So, Peter, on the same uh, plane, let's talk about the World Economic Forum, its origination, and and what it what it, what it represents today, and how it operates. Just a couple words on that, if you wouldn't mind. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, you've already mentioned it. Uh, it's been around since uh, actually quite about 50 years now, half a century. And the same man that uh, we just talked about, Klaus Schwab, is the one who is still leading it to today. Uh, the original idea of the World Economic Forum was uh, what it is today, which is uh, to uh, stand for what we call stakeholder capitalism, stakeholder responsibility, the idea that businesses uh, optimize for more than just short-term profits and that they uh, work more on long-term value creation. And if I say that now, of course, it almost sounds like I'm saying nothing new. And in fact, it is nothing new from the perspective of the World Economic Forum. But I think we have come a far away in the last couple of years, uh, as you probably well know and, and follow as well, on that front, moving from this short-term uh, profit orientation of companies in the economy to a more long-term oriented uh, view. And, and certainly the last um, year has brought a big shock to us in that regard. Uh, uh, but uh, we're, that's what we're working on still. So here's a, a kind of an ironic uh, development uh, based on what you've said that was is going to get us to the book, Stakeholder Capitalism. And that is, as I recall, uh, Klaus Schwab created um, what was going to be a one-year gathering in, in Davos, uh, as I said earlier, not too far from Zurich, uh, for European executives to learn from American faculty and American um, senior managers about the kind of the American way and over the years, it has uh, evolved into now a, a, a genuine world forum. Some 2,500 people typically show up in Davos when the event is live. Uh, I've been there myself almost a dozen times, so I've seen it uh, firsthand. But here's the ironic twist. The, um, I suppose the home of shareholder capitalism is the U.S. So while the original formulation here was for European managers to learn from American managers. Now, is it not going the other way in that in advocating stakeholder capitalism, is this not maybe a message more than any other uh, intended for more, more for American business leaders and maybe any other constituency out there? What do you think? Yeah, it is quite remarkable, isn't it? Because if you look back at uh, the year that the World Economic Forum was founded, 1971, uh, was a special year in two uh, other regards as well in terms of economics, which is uh, one, uh, it was uh, the year or just a few months after Milton Friedman wrote his uh, famous essay in the New York Times talking about the social responsibility of business being just making profits. So that's that shareholder short-term profit orientation that, that uh, you referred to. And uh, looking back in the rearview mirror, it was also, we know now, the last year in which the amount of resources we used to generate what we make in the economy, in the world economy, was not more than what the planet could um, sustain. Let's say it was the last year in which we had what you could say was a sustainable economy. And so, of course, those decades since, in other words, have been marked by this, you no, know, by the fact that uh, we've used up uh, so many resources and and we've lived in an economy that was mostly short-term and profit-oriented. And so, in this regard, it's true um, that today we may be uh, in a different situation where you might see a little bit more of that long-term orientation, perhaps here in Europe. I certainly know of a couple of companies, and we can talk about them. But then this year, Mike is also. Uh, remarkable in another aspect, because this year is the first year in which Asia is producing, again, for the first time in 200 years, 
more than half of global GDP. Um, and so in that regard, it's quite a turning point as well. So, Peter, let, let's dwell for a few minutes on your allusion to Milton Friedman. So just by way of brief context, uh, uh, an economist based at the University of Chicago passed away some years ago, uh, winner of the Nobel Prize, of course, in economics. And he wrote uh, maybe one of the most read articles ever. It appeared in the New York Times magazine a little over 50 years ago. And I'll, I'll paraphrase it. I'd like you to pick up on this, see if we got this right, because it's a touchstone for talking about, or it's a, it's a point or maybe a counterpoint for talking about stakeholder capitalism. He said, paraphrasing here, that you're in business to get business done. And if you deviate from the narrow path of producing returns to investors and owners, uh, you're not, <laughs> you are not being responsible. So to become involved in social responsibility is genuinely irresponsible. So Peter, add to that and then we'll play off that a little bit. What, what else uh, do you hang on to from what Milton Friedman argued? Yeah, it's it's what you say is true. You paraphrase it. We sometimes paraphrase it in another way. We say the business of business is business. Yep. Uh, and of course, what he literally wrote was uh, the social response or the only social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. And and of course, the legacy of Milton Friedman is an enormous one. Um, whether you agree with him or you don't, dis uh, you don't agree with him. But uh, of course, we've come to realize today that there is more responsibility of business than just business. We've come to realize that business is not just a profit-generating entity, but it's also a social entity. It plays a role in society and has responsibilities towards its stakeholders, and that include employees, that include the communities it works in, and so on and so forth. And that's come more to the forefront, I think, uh, in the last couple of years it's really a vindication, I think, of the perspective that my boss had uh, when I wasn't even around, uh, namely uh, this idea of stakeholder capitalism. And so that's what we've uh, we've built also our uh, theories on and, and our writings on in the last couple of years. All right, Peter, let's just take a, a brief breather here today. I need to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Usain. And our guest today is Peter Vanham, co-author of a brand new book called, listen carefully, Stakeholder Capitalism, A Global Economy That Works for Progress, People, and Planet. And Peter, to stay on the theme that we were on just a, a minute ago, a little bit further, the I think the tagline for the World Economic Forum, right below the name that you see on uh, <laughs> the front of many, many reports, Improving the state of the world. So let's see if business is focused on the business of business. Maybe that uh, the, improving the state of the world is not the first thing that comes to the mind of, of the top management team there. So what gives you optimism that you can move the needle away from the kind of thinking that certainly uh, Milton Friedman advocated to a state or a world or a context in which leaders of business worry about communities and climate change and sustainability and inequality. So yeah. wh where's that going to come from in, in the business sector? Well, I think, you know, the last year, um, as scarring as it has been for all of us, has also been, uh, you know, a hopeful year in the sense that uh, what we've seen, for example, in terms of developing 
and distributing vaccines for COVID-19, I think is an extremely good example of the good that business is capable of if it does work on the common good and if it does uh, work together. I mean, like the uh, my father's a virologist, he's never seen uh, development of vaccines at such a rapid scale, less than 12 months, and including now, uh, even though there's a lot of uh, discussion about it here in Europe, including now also distribution, which is uh, being uh, is happening at a, at a very, very fast pace. And so that's an example of how business can, of course, also do very, very good. It can do, do good for itself and it can do good for society uh, if it focuses on delivering, uh, let's say, value to society. And so you get that hope from what we are seeing today. And then you get it, frankly, also from you know the general impact of, of uh, business and, and, and the economy. I mean, even though we, we live in various crises today, a climate crisis, a crisis of inequality, and, and of course, a public health crisis, it's still true that materially, most of the world population is much better off than it was uh, 50 years ago. And that is, of course, also a story of capitalism and uh, and what business has been able to do. It's just happened, I think, in a very unsustainable and an uh, unequal way. And that's what we have to work on now. So, Peter, not to overstate it on my part, but uh, I think everybody's been, well, of course, completely impressed with the GDP growth per capita in China over the last 50 years. And some economists have argued it's the it's the largest and most successful anti-poverty program ever, and that some 500 million Chinese residents have been pulled out of poverty, partly because of the uh, growth of state-owned enterprise, SOEs, but also because of the private sector, Alibaba, maybe best known in that uh, particular world. But, but here's the, I guess, the question I have to stay on this topic of the role, your role and that of Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum in moving the needle, which I think the book unequivocally is, is centered on, uh, the, the needle in this case being the thinking of people who are responsible for economic development, for political uh, guidance, and certainly for uh, business leadership. Question is this, uh, Let's see, first of all, they ought to read your book. And then, uh, from your own experience, what do you think, as you've worked with many, many people through the World Economic Forum that are in business, most reaches them and persuades them to think about stakeholder capitalism and not shareholder capitalism? And by the way, we'll come back to another term you use, which is state capitalism. But anyway, what helps move uh, business leaders to accept the stakeholder theory um, of their own operations? Well, I think it's that in the long run, uh, while some economists uh, would say we're all dead, um, you know, some other uh, people would take this perspective that in the long run, uh, you know, we all have the same objectives. And, uh, yeah. and the long-term aspect that sort of uh, prevents this short-term conflict of interest. And, and in the long run, businesses they do well when society does well. And so we've seen that with a number of companies that have committed, let's say, to long-term goals, such as the sustainable development goals of the United Nations, uh, because they know if we put our, our, our sights a little bit farther uh, on the horizon, 
then it gives us direction, strategic direction, and we will sustain our, our business model or we will sustain our profits and our growth uh, in the long run as well as in the, in the short run. And that's really where, uh, where those interests uh, get, uh, uh, get in alignment, I think. I like the optimism, and here's my words on, on that, and that is in thinking about the, the next quarter, the next year, like us all, we're worried about our own particular agenda. we got to get our job done. If we become too focused, though, on the near term, we do neglect the long term. Uh, sustainability, climate change among the uh, longer term concerns there. So back, back almost to the same question. Uh, when a top executive comes to Davos, it's a couple hour train ride just uh, south, kind of southeast of uh, Zurich, and they walk into your uh, your Congress Center there, and you grab them by the lapels, and you say, you really got to think long term. What in your own experience and that of uh, uh, Klaus seems to most move the the thinking on the part of company executives to say, you're right. I think most uh, business executives know that uh, they have to be oriented towards the long term. Uh, the question is how, and and if you if you look at some positive examples of that, I think that's what inspires people the most, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, there there's there's companies we describe a couple of in our book, for example, a company like Maersk, uh, largest shipping company in the world, uh, a history of, of more than a, than a hundred years. And, and what they've done, for example, in the last couple of years, an incredible transformation away from, let's say, the unsustainable parts of the business. They've divested their oil business, and they have just announced this week uh, that they're now working on uh, on mm -hmm. clean ships, let's say. So it's one example of many. Uh, but if you, if you show uh, other business and other business leaders, here's how it can be done. I think that's the most convincing, I think, on the principle uh, most agree, and the question is really how do you how do you get there? And and so working on those examples and and showing those case studies, I think is often the most convincing. And I think you make really a, a kind of to put my words on it here, kind of a leadership argument as follows. Um, in referencing Maersk, you, you do reference the chair of that board, Jim Snobby, uh, who's also I think been chair of the Siemens board in in Germany, one of Germany's largest companies. And uh, he's been very active in the World Economic Forum, I realize, uh, for many, many years. And I think he's a needle mover himself. So I guess I'm kind of scratching my way towards uh, this question. The forces are enormous. They're impersonal. The economies have their own dynamics, of course, that we know. But it sounds to me like your own theory of what's going to change the world often comes down to people who actually are willing to step forward like Jim Snobby and say, come on, we got to think five years out, sustainability, climate change, and so on. What do you think? I think you can see that, and particularly this is true in the, um, in the climate agenda, right? Uh, you know, if you go back only a couple, of, it's now hard to imagine, but if you go back only a couple of years to, let's say, the pre-Paris uh, years, it was not so that all of business or all of society was uh, had that sort of climate emergency, the the urgency to to do something about it, and to and to change course quickly. But what you've seen in the run up, particularly to to the Paris Accord, which of course sort of provides that long term agenda of change for for uh, climate, 
what you saw is that a couple of individuals stepped forward also in the business community and that sort of said we have to be leading on this front because if it if if we're not going to do it then it's not going to going to happen and so what you saw in preparation and I saw this myself at the World Economic Forum in the meetings that we had at Davos um, you saw that that group of leaders that stepped forward really, as to use your terms, moved the needle on that front. And they brought first uh, all the other business leaders along with them. And then afterwards, you saw that actually the political buy-in followed, which was really not a given at the time. And so I think it, it is often individuals. I mean, you mentioned uh, uh, you, you mentioned Jim Snaba. You know, other names that come to mind are people like Paul Pullman, the former CEO of Unilever. And uh, for example, on other agendas, uh, somebody that we work with a lot is is uh, Mark Benioff of Salesforce in San Francisco. You know, these people really are are, are, are lightning rods, or sort of they they, they show uh, the light of where where to go, and then and then people follow. Peter, I'm just going to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action, and we are speaking with you, Peter Vanham, uh, co-author of Stakeholder Capitalism. Uh, with a couple minutes to go before we're going to take a, a station break here. Uh, let's stay on this very issue. Do you think at the end of the day that when you bring 2,500 people into Davos, Switzerland for the annual meeting this last round a few weeks ago, of course, it was all uh, over the uh, Internet. Uh, do you think that the, I guess, the number one generator of real change is those people like... Paul Pullman and Unilever, who have already arrived at stakeholder capitalism in their thinking, they've made certain that their firm follows those precepts, as Paul Pullman did when he was at Unilever. He stepped down recently. And do you think that uh, the number one, call it uh, the, uh, the voltage for change, is for people who have appreciated the power of stakeholder capitalism to talk to their fellow company executives above yeah, I all. Think, I think you have the, always, uh, always the carrot and the stick, don't you? And so the yes. carrot uh, is, uh, is probably that, sort of a positive example of people who've gone down that road and been successful. And the stick very often uh, is, uh, for example, activist investors. Uh, it is uh, uh, activists such as Greta Thunberg that we all know, a climate activist, and, and, and for example, on the investor front, people such as uh, Larry Fink, uh, who writes often in his annual letter to CEOs uh, of the need to, to really change uh, the way business is done. So you, ha you have, I think, always that interplay between those two, between uh, the push and the pull, between the carrot uh, and the stick, and they both have a crucial role to play. And of course, that's also part and parcel of this idea of stakeholder capitalism, uh, where you have various, we call them then stakeholders, but you have various uh, people who have an interest in uh, what happens in society and in, and in business and, and who push for their interests. And, and we think that something positive comes out of it if they all gather and, and sit at the same table. So you mentioned uh, a moment ago uh, a critic of, the, uh, of our failures to concern ourselves with climate change. And the World Economic Forum has had a habit of bringing on critics onto the big stage there. And I think I'm hearing a theory there. We need to hear people from people like Paul Pullman at Unilever, who've done it, have been there, have moved the, their own company in the right direction, but also some of the severest critics of the failures of, of 
shareholder capitalism. Don't you worry that that could backfire as you hear the critics, uh, as, as those gathered hear the critics, it does it run the danger of putting up their backs and thus creating more resistance? What do you think? Well, you know, you, criticism, I think you always get, especially if you're, uh, if you're being ambitious and you try to, to lead. Um, but that's, you have to always look at what the alternative is, right? And the alternative is, is not to bring uh, such voices to the table. And that will backfire, of course, much more. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, if you if you don't bring at the table, for example, the voices of the new generation, uh, then uh, ultimately it will come back to haunt you because these uh, people that today are students or that are school students, in ten years they're workers, and in twenty years uh, they're your direct uh, your your activist investors. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you have to be a little bit uh, courageous, I suppose, and uh, and face the criticism because if you deal deal with it in a positive way. I think the outcome's better. Yeah, better to hear it now than some at some point later on. If you could identify one or maybe two individuals that have had more impact on your own thinking over the years than just about anybody else along the line of building stakeholder capitalism. Sure. I think this past year, two leaders that I was particularly impressed by were President Macron of France and Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of uh, Germany. In the case of uh, President Macron, we of course know him, uh, you know, as the president of France, but he's also somebody who's a, a real intellectual, I think, and, and and thinks deeply about economic issues. And so he this year uh, really embraced this idea of uh, and explicitly embraced this idea of stakeholder capitalism. And I thought that was quite remarkable, of course, because uh, the country that he governs and the and the continent uh, faces. Uh, like many other countries, a lot of uh, crises and challenges. And for him to sort of um, uh, get to the detail of uh, what stakeholder capitalism meant to, to him, I think was quite uh, impressive. And then the other person that I already mentioned, Chancellor Merkel of uh, Germany, is somebody that I've been impressed with a very, very long time. I actually studied in Germany when she was just uh, chancellor for the first time. And I, I saw her speak then, and I saw her speak, of course, still today, so many years later. And what I find impressive about her is how she's really been consistent all those years yep. in, in her policies in sort of standing for that sort of moral leadership, that ethical leadership of doing the right thing, not just for herself, not just for even her countrymen, but really uh, trying to do the right thing for the world. And that's something that's so deeply embedded in her uh, and in her country's history, of course. Uh, she's a, a child, really, uh, of the... Uh, the aftermath of, of uh, World War II, uh, grew up in Eastern Germany. And that always comes through in her thinking, in her speeches, and of course, in, in her actions and her policies. And those are two people that I find very impressive. You know, it's interesting, Peter, I'm going to interject my own uh, thinking on Angela Merkel in particular. Uh, I did see her speak several times at the World Economic Forum in Davos. And I think the last time I saw her, uh, she's on stage, a thousand people in the audience taking in all of her words, and she was putting forward her own vision for what had to be strengthened in the European Union, Germany in particular, of course, uh, including uh, the creation of more money, more capital for startups. We don't have enough for Silicon Valley to speak of in Germany and elsewhere. Uh, she advocated tougher standards for the protection of intellectual property, vital for tech development as well. Uh, but then to get to the main point, she stepped away from the lectern and 
really apropos what you just said about her. She said, uh, by the way, I just want to remind people that I uh, grew up in a small town about a uh, about a hundred kilometers north of Berlin, and then I attended the University of Leipzig. And to be honest, I was mystified by why the German chancellor was telling a thousand people about her her hometown. In a sense, who cares? She's the chancellor of uh, Germany, uh, a leader of the European Union, 300 million people. Why do we need to know anything about her own personal biography? Uh, but she then quickly said, um, kind of answering the question that probably developed in, in many people's minds, including my own, by the way, the reason I tell you that is that <clears throat> I've seen the opposite of what I now advocate. I grew up in East Germany. There was no protection of intellectual property, no capital for startups. And thus, uh, for me, maybe the most uh, kind of poignant and persuasive moment in my own thinking about leadership that part of the, the task of people like the like Macron of France and uh, certainly Merkel of Germany is to set forward policy, that, that's what we do if we're a politician, but also ground it and make clear, ground it in yourself and make clear that you are a carrier of that philosophy uh, because of your character. It was a moment of communicating her character that has always stayed with me. So with that all said, Peter, let's go back to um, uh, somebody in business who really stands out that you've seen on stage as as a speaker or as a communicator, either in Davos, the, the big meeting, or in some other ways within the World Economic Forum, who have really had an impact on your thinking about stakeholder capitalism. Sure. Um, you know, one thinker, an economics thinker, business thinker, if you will, that I was very impressed with in doing research for his book was uh, a man called Bai Chong En. Hmm. Name that will ring a bell, I think, for most uh, listeners. And it didn't for me before I met him. He's the dean of economics at uh, at Tsinghua University in Beijing. And I met him in Beijing in his office, and he and, and to talk about this idea of like you know stakeholder capitalism and and what do you think of this, and of course also centering in this case on the Chinese economy. And what he said was very interesting. He said, for example, he talked about how inequality in China had exploded over the last couple of decades that were the same decades in which we had that incredible growth story in, uh, in China. And he was very much able to pinpoint what was the reason for that. And so rather than being dogmatic about, you know, whether you, as, you know, in, in China, of course, uh, uh, the, the man who started the, the, the road to capitalism, uh, of course, was somebody who was famous for saying, it doesn't matter if the cat is uh, white or black as long as it catches the mice. So you'd expect uh, uh, Chinese thinkers to be pragmatic. So rather than to be dogmatic about that, he pinpointed to specific policies and actions that had led to that. And in his case, he said, if you look at China, uh, when we opened up, um, one of the major issues has been that in terms of specifically the access to education, the access uh, to housing, um, that that has been unequal and that has reverberated as the economy grew yep. uh, in the same healthcare. And so I thought that was very interesting because it also holds some promise for how you can solve that later on. All right, Peter, very good. Let's move now in our final minutes here to action. And from your book and from your thinking, I've got three questions uh, targeting, uh, well, people in business around the world 
what should they do? Then number two, what should the World Economic Forum do in light of what you have said in the book with the executive chair? And then a very personal question, we're going to end on this. What should you personally do to, uh, to advance this agenda? So let's start with uh, business leaders around the world. What, what do you think they should do in light of the book? Uh, or maybe I'm really asking you to tell us what's in the final chapters of your book. Sure. Yeah, I think that there's a two-step process there. One is to sort of uh, think about business transformation on the long term, which is how are you going to change uh, your business model, what you do, uh, knowing that the best uh, uh, perspective you can have is a long-term one, working on in support of things such as sustainable development goals. And so we've seen that in a, with a couple of companies who've really been able to change what they do as a company, which activities they undertake and how they make their money um, by saying these are the sustainable development goals that we want to work towards so that we want to contribute to. So that's the long-term aspect of it. And then to keep track along the way uh, this is the second step. Uh, we recommend that companies subscribe to something that we call stakeholder capitalism metrics. This is basically to make sure that companies don't only do financial reporting on profits and loss, uh, but also that they can report on other measures uh, that are vital to uh, the firm. And so that's really the two-step process, I think, yep. for uh, companies. Uh to dwell for a second on metrics, uh, the, the famous saying in business, and you know it, is that if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So we need some numbers. Uh, minimum wage, for example, uh, disparity between the compensation of the top person and, say, the, the median employee in the company. So I, I think I'm hearing you that you're an advocate of um, getting some metrics out there that go beyond total shareholder return. Yeah, I think that's right. So we've uh, actually developed in the World Economic Forum together with uh, an organization we, uh, we call the International Business Council of the World Economic Forum, chaired, by the way, by Brian Moynihan, uh, the CEO, of course, of Bank of America, supported by many other American, large American firms. We've developed these metrics, right? These stakeholder capitalism metrics. And they do exactly what you say. I mean, like they look at, at measures, everything from, you know, measuring diversity, measuring pay, Measuring taxes paid uh, uh, and, and measuring, yep. for example, CO2 emissions and so on and so forth and to report on those alongside financial reporting and to do it uh, with the idea of you either report or you explain, report or explain uh, why you don't report it or why you cannot report on it. And, and, and that will ultimately lead to do a better comparability. You know, you see how your performance uh, improves over time, your own performance. Um, and it uh, leads to a better comparability in between businesses. You can see uh, how different businesses in the same sector and across sectors are doing on these uh, on these fronts. And so I think that's uh, exactly one thing that we need to do. And by the way, to comment on an ally here that you've also mentioned in your book, some of the world's largest investment managers, BlackRock at the top of that heap. Last time I looked, I think it's holdings were something north of seven trillion dollars. The person who runs BlackRock, Larry Fink, has been saying now for some time, uh, I want the companies we invest in and BlackRock, just like Vanguard and State Street, uh, it invests in just about every publicly uh, traded company on the planet. Uh, I want good metrics of your footprint on uh, how you're affecting uh, inequality, how you're affecting uh, climate change and well beyond. So there's a Kind of a natural ally there. Before we go on, I do need to remind listeners 
This, of course, is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Mike Hussein, and we're talking with Peter Vanham, co-author of a new book, Stakeholder Capitalism. Peter, let's turn then to the second of the three questions I have. What do you think the World Economic Forum ought to do the next couple of years to move this agenda along that you set out at the end of the book uh, with Klaus Schwab? Sure. I mean, we've, as I said, we've played a, this role in, in these stakeholder capitalism metrics. We've now designed them together with these companies and also, by the way, the, fee, the four large accounting firms, huh? KPMG, Deloitte, uh, EY, and PwC. Um, and of course, the next step there is to, is to make sure that uh, as many companies as possible subscribe to that uh, notion and that they start reporting on that. And so that will take a couple of years, right? Uh, first to, yeah. to start reporting and then to see progress on them. So expect to see more progress on that front in the next, uh, let's say, three to five years. And then, frankly, um, you know, we talk about stakeholder capitalism. We've developed these, this concept. We've developed these metrics. But then I think you also want to work on some case studies, some positive examples. We already mentioned that before. And so I think we'll, we'll want to work on that front as well to show how it's done in the next couple of years. And by the way, not only for companies, which we've already talked about a little bit today, but inclusive also for other stakeholders, including governments, because governments too uh, have to sort of reinvent themselves in this era, uh, try to find new ways of uh, solving these major challenges that we're facing today. And I think you'll see some action on that front as well. It's a really interesting point there, a side point, but let me just emphasize it. Uh, we've noticed in our own programs, we do many programs with uh, mid-career and senior executives, that they learn hearing academic concepts to be analytic is very important, but they also learn by directly witnessing, observing, or learning about what others like them have done, in this particular case, to move towards a more stakeholder model. So good to have those case studies. Peter, a personal question. What about you? What's going to be your role in, in moving this agenda as well? Well, I, I'm I'm all, all for these uh, case studies. You know, my previous book was before I was CEO, uh, which uh, we talked about a couple of years ago and which you were a kind uh, promoter of along the way. Uh, the idea of that book was, was to show how people's lives and careers are shaped by specific experiences that they have along the way and decisions that they take and the lessons that they learn from that. And I thought that that was incredibly eye-opening on a personal front uh, for myself and I hope also mm -hmm. for, for many readers. And, I, and I, I'm a true believer in, in this uh, model of, you know, sort of learning from leaders and learning from examples. And so I think that in the next couple of years, I'd love to work on, on showing uh, what specific leaders are doing specifically to move this uh, idea of stakeholder capitalism uh, forward. And then I think uh, a final point is, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you can have all the right ideas and metrics and, and plans and examples, uh, but I think you also need to have a moral compass. I think that's also an, an important element of uh, being a good leader. And so to explore a little bit more what that means is also something I'm high on my agenda. So let me put a couple of thoughts on that as we begin now to close up here, and that is, if you're a listener to this program, following Peter's prescription right there, uh, first of all, read about the world. Go back and take a look at the famous Milton Friedman essay. It's all over the web. You can find it in a dozen places. Uh, pick up books like uh, this one on stakeholder capitalism. Watch what's going on in China and Germany and elsewhere. But then don't forget to spend time with some people. If you're not right in the middle of this, who are in the middle of this? 
And we've always found, to see if this sounds right, Peter, that if um, even a person of low stature like me calls up a, an executive and says, uh, you know, I'd just like to spend 45 minutes these days, uh, say, in a Zoom call, uh, hearing about how you're, how you're moving towards a more uh, diverse stakeholder holding view of your firm, just can we talk for a few minutes about that? I'd like to, in my case, I'd say I'd like to bring that into the classroom. My own experience, uh, I get yes more often than a no on that request. So may I recommend to listeners take Peter's um, guidance there and, and spend some time with people who are doing it if you're not doing it yourself. So, Peter, we're, we're getting close here to the end. Um, maybe a, a final question going back to something I alluded to. And that is, you've, there's a third poll out there. So there is shareholder capitalism, stakeholder capitalism, and then state capitalism. So what's that mean and where is that going? Well, I think that uh, the idea of state capitalism is that uh, it is a capitalist system, meaning that the private sector uh, is in control of, uh, let's say, more than half of uh, uh, the capital or the uh, capital investments in a country or, or, or owns more than half of the assets, uh, but that the state role uh, is, at the end of the day, the most decisive and, and, and the most important in that capitalist system. And of course, if you describe it like that, then it's not hard to imagine in what kind of countries that you see this model in the last couple of uh, decades. And, and one example, of course, uh, we could say is, is China, but this is actually a prevalent model. Uh, I think all around uh, emerging markets, you often have a model that's effectively a state capitalist model where the most important stakeholder is the state. Um, and so that contrasts, of course, to shareholder capitalism, where the most important stakeholder is the shareholder of company. And uh, then stakeholder capitalism, which is the model that we stand for, which is where there is uh, an equal importance uh, of all the those who have a stake in the company and the economy and society. To put you on the spot then, state capitalism on the face of it would seem to be one way to resolve the issues around too much shareholder capitalism because the state will force companies, literally force companies through policies to become more savvy about uh, wage rates and protection of the environment. So is state capitalism the future? What do you think? Well, you know, I, I can't decide, of course, which model that, uh, that companies or, or, or voters yeah. choose for. But, you know, one issue that we've observed with state capitalist systems uh, around the world is that the, 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 the problem exists or the risk emerges uh, of, uh, let's say, corruption. Uh, if you have one stakeholder that is all powerful, then of course you always have the risk that that power is misused. Yeah. And so we believe that it's more, let's say it's better to have more checks and balances. It's better to have more people sitting at that table and, and making sure that everyone is focused on uh, the good of, of everyone. And, and that's, I think, uh, a better approach uh, to minimize this risk of uh, corruption in the system, of misuse of power and so on and so forth. And so that's a, a system that I think, and I hope, uh, will be more, uh, the stakeholder capitalist system will be more dominant uh, in the future. Peter, a final question before you and I do an after-action review, and I'd like listeners to be doing their own prep for that after-action review, but here's the final question. 
Uh, two of the great issues in front of us, especially over the last year, but the, the roots go back many, many years, is uh, number one, diversity and inclusion. We want great diversity and who, who's involved in a company, running a company, serving in government as well. And we want everybody to be at the table and included in the conversation. So diversity and inclusion are really critical. Number two, um, and you've got some data in your book that certainly supports this point, and that is the widening gap between the haves and the haves-nots. So as you look ahead the next couple of years, are you an optimist or a pessimist that we're going to come to terms with in the best sense of diversity, inclusion, and the end of extreme inequality? What do you think? I mean, I'm an, I'm an optimist, but that's independent of your question. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so I'm, I'm an optimist yeah. when I look at the future, but uh, but I think these issues that you raise of inequality of income and, and outcome uh, and uh, and diversity and inclusion are problems that are not going away if we leave the system as is. And so in that sense, I think uh, pessimism is is the more uh, uh, the more correct attitude because uh, you know unless you do something about it, then we are certainly heading towards more crises and more crises of inequality and more crises of uh, diversity and inclusion. So I think, uh, you know, but I'm also somebody who believes a uh, possibilist, uh, somebody who thinks that uh, you can change the future, you can uh, shape the future. And and I think on that front, uh, you know, if you choose for more inclusive policies, for example, from the get-go, if you choose to invest more in education, if you choose to invest more in healthcare and in housing, for example, as a government, uh, then you will get more inclusive outcomes. And when it pertains to, let's say, uh, inclusion and diversity at the top, um, you know, it's a matter of corporate responsibility uh, of ensuring that uh, there is equal access to these roles. And then finally, uh, frankly, uh, you know, you can wish that everybody is the CEO of a company, but of course that won't happen. There's only one CEO at a time. And so I think it's also a matter of making sure that we value other roles in society, in the economy more than we currently do. I think there's a lot of people who are actually creating a lot of value for society and yeah. who are severely underpaid. And I think that's a third element where you can uh, change the future and make it better. All right, the after action review. And what this entails, as I said at the outset, is on, on your part and then my part. And let's bounce back and forth uh, very quickly here. What are the maybe the two points you'd most like listeners to hang on to? So they think back at this program. I hope they don't forget it uh, in the near or long term. And as they think back, what are the let's start. Let's begin with one on your part. Then to me, we'll go back and forth twice. What would you like people to really hang on to? Sure. I think uh, rather than focusing only on profits, add these two things: add people and planet, add the well-being of people and the planet to your mm -hmm. equation instead of only looking at profits. I'm with you on that one. Stakeholder capitalism is a good way to f sum it up. Um, multiple stakeholders, they've got a stake, they ought to be at the table. Peter, number two. Oh, that was my that was my number two, actually. People was number one and planet was number two. <laughs> okay. But I think the other, <laughs> the other element is that, uh, you know, we, we look at the economy and we look at uh, what happens in the world and uh, whether you look away from the world and from other places, uh, or uh, you look uh, towards them, I think we share this uh, one uh, planet and sooner or later we'll be, uh, uh, we'll be, uh, we'll be carrying the consequences, positive or negative, for what happens elsewhere. 
And so I think that's the other element to, to be mindful of uh, if you look yep. at the future. And so let me just add this uh, by closing on my part. Uh, you're modest about uh, the organization you, you represent, uh, appropriately so, but I do have to remind listeners that uh, one of the forces for stakeholder capitalism has indeed been the World Economic Forum. It's been on a campaign for more than 50 years now to, quote, improve the state of the world, including uh, sustaining our economy. We want growth. We want equity. We want inclusion. And uh, the World Economic Forum, uh, represented actually by this book very well, has been one of the campaigners for a more just and a, and a more um, robust capitalism that will carry us into the future. So, Peter, thank you for being on the program. Just a final question as we sign off. For people who want to know more about you, the book, and the World Economic Forum, where would they go? Well, Wiley says it's a publisher. They say it's available wherever books are sold. So rather than uh, recommending one particular place, as I would, I would say go to your local bookstore, go to bookshop.org, uh, or go directly to wiley.com. I think you'll find it uh, pretty much uh, everywhere. Or, of course, go to World Economic Forum on social media and websites. All right. I think we got it. Really appreciate your being on the program today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right, everybody, if you've got a question about the show, you know where to find us uh, by email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find uh, follow us on Twitter, of course. Special thanks to our guest, Peter Vanham, in from Geneva, Switzerland here. Want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tuke. I'm Mike Yuseem, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Be well. Come back next week. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.